Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. You know, uh, this Thanksgiving season and Indigenous Peoples Day on Friday reminds us that uh, uh, Unitarians and Universalists profited from the stolen land uh, taken from the Native peoples and also profited from commerce in enslaved Africans. And none of those debts have ever been paid. Uh, First Unitarian Society building itself occupies the traditional land of the Dakota people. It was land ceded uh, in 1851 by a treaty that the U.S. government has yet to honor. And we acknowledge the present use of that land is uh, rooted in exploitation of indigenous peoples. We commit ourselves to working for some kind of reckoning for these past wrongs and the present injustices that continue. And that's what I want to talk about today. My uh, paternal grandmother uh, didn't leave any jewelry or dishes or knickknacks when she died. Uh, she was born a sharecropper and she died only a little bit better off. So she just didn't have very much. But one item that she did leave that I wish I had today was uh, an aluminum uh, wash pan that she had. Uh, you know, back when there's no running water, uh, wash pans are an absolute essential household item. Uh, wash pans serve, uh, you know, to do the dishes and also for general house cleaning, to carry the water in from the well, and of course, spit baths, uh, as we used to call them. They're a multi-use tool. And the thing about my grandmother's wash pan that stood out for me was all the patches that it had on it. Uh, the pan was absolutely covered in little tin patches uh, called dams. That's the origin of the uh, phrase Tinker's Dam, D-A-M, as in I don't give a Tinker's Dam. A dam was a little bitty patch that was held on by two little brass brads and uh, uh, Tinker's uh, installed those. Before the Second World War, Tinker's wandered the countryside showing up at isolated farmhouses offering their services to mend pots and pans. And my grandmother's wash pan was full of those little patches, one on top of another. Uh, and I have no idea how old that thing was when I saw it as a kid. It was a true accidental work of art. Now, as you know, I'm interested in language and oddly enough, Tinker's Dam has two interrelated meanings because it was born out of oral culture, not a written culture. So a Tinker's Dam, D-A-M, is a tiny little tin patch. But a Tinker's Dam, D-A-M-N, uh, was what Tinkers would say as they worked on those little patches. Uh, the work was very delicate and difficult, as you can imagine, and getting those little tiny brass brads in the right place was not so easy. And so Tinkers said, damn, a whole lot. And so that's the, uh, the origin of that and also a, a phrase, swear like a tinker. Uh, now, you know, said either way, tinker's dam or tinker's dam, um, all of those things are plentiful and cheap. Now, 
Contrast that with the Japanese kitsungi tradition of fixing bowls that the Peter Mayer song is about that we heard this morning. Kitsugi is a very old tradition and very much based in a Japanese Zen Buddhist practice, the Buddhist practice of mushin, uh, usually translated as non-attachment in English. It's about the acceptance of change and loss and embracing the imperfect and the broken. The art of Kintsugi claims for the broken bowls that each is unique and beautiful and resilient. Another break will only make that bowl more unique and more beautiful. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the ancient Stoic concept of catastrophizing, imagining the worst case scenario as always. Well, Mushin is a more complex way of thinking about just that, imagining the worst and how things fall apart very quickly. Now, according to Zen Buddhism, everything is passing in the process of re reality at all times. Each moment is an ending, and not realizing and accepting that fact ignores and removes a lot of the beauty and the piquancy of life. And Japanese bowls, my grandmother's much damned wash bowl, all the work of all the tinkers who ever patched my grandmother's wash bowl and all the lives of all the tinkers who patched the bowl and my memory of my grandmother and her wash bowl, all of that is part of the process of reality that moves from moment to moment, always forward and never back. All of it is the stuff of stars. Now, another lesson from Kitsugi and my grandmother's washbowl for that matter, is that hiding the cracks and the flaws and the patches is a fool's game. Overlooking or actively hiding or explaining away the breaks and faults only creates further harm. Those cracks and those splices are history and there's something to be faced and reckoned with, as I mentioned earlier. Something not to hide away in the pantry, but to put on a shelf of honor so that we can look at them and consider how those old breaks got fixed or perhaps are not yet fixed and what we have to do to get down to the work of fixing those breaks. Uh, you may have seen a recent interview uh, with former President Obama published uh, in the uh, newest edition of the, the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. And in that uh, interview, Obama says this, quote, if we do not have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, then by definition, the marketplace of ideas doesn't work. And by definition, our democracy doesn't work. We are entering into an epistemological crisis, end quote. And a epistemological crisis. Yes, Obama tends to use those sorts of academic words. Epistemology is a term used in theology and philosophy to mean uh, how we go about finding and proving what is real and true. Progressive people tend to use science and scholarship and reason as epistemological devices. But many, if not most, of our fellow citizens do not see those methods as epistemologically sound. Other things like scripture or, or the voice of God or how they find out 
about what is true and real. Now, this isn't a case of you say potato and I say patata, uh, as uh, George and Ira Gershwin wrote, and we can't call the whole thing off because we have to have a working democracy, or I hope we get one anyway. So some of you know that I teach an introduction class to humanism uh, for theological students. Um, I don't talk about epistemology very much in my introductory class because there's another term that's more basic, I think, and has more social consequences than epistemology. And that's a term known as ontology. Ontos is the Greek word for being. It's the study of the very nature of how we be in the world. It's how we live as individuals and also in a social network. And the reason I teach ontology as a foundational graduate course in humanism is that most of us already have an epistemology. We believe in science and reason or we don't. And frankly, a person's epistemology is pretty well non-negotiable. If you've ever tried to talk with someone about that, it doesn't work all that well. But Obama is absolutely correct, I think, that we are entering into an epistemological crisis that may make democracy impossible if we let it continue. Arguing about epistemology, I think, however, is not the way out of the problem. The place that change might occur is in looking at ontology. Because yeah, everybody's got one of those two, but we're a little more likely to think someone else might have a different one of those instead of looking at the very basis of truth. I mean, for example, I was raised as a working class fundamentalist Protestant religious uh, person. That, that's my ontology as a child. I grew up believing that the US government was a, a rigged game, a way of exploiting the poor people and further extracting our labor and diminishing our very lives. Uh, in Pentecostalism, uh, we quoted chapter and verse about that. We called that Caesar, and we believed that rendering unto Caesar was something we had to do because Caesar had more guns than we did. So we had no honor for Caesar, but we towed the line. Rather, we rendered unto God those things that were God's, and that's where our loyalties lay. That was our ontology. I grew up with that, and uh, yeah, it's uh, very difficult to get out of that way of thinking. Um, the sinners are all over the world, and everyone's going to act badly anyway. And that's still where a lot of Americans live. Uh, I got lucky. I, through personal struggle, was able to get out of that kind of place. Uh, so I do know it's possible to free yourself from the anger and the distrust and the othering that goes into that kind of ontology. I got uh, enough education and money to see that uh, ontology is flexible. Our basic way of understanding our very being can be altered and we can learn to accept the ontologies of others. Um, but most Americans don't know that, but we who do know probably need to step up and try to help people and liberate them from the fear and the rage that the other kinds of ontologies underline. Some of us are privileged enough to have the ability to learn that ontology isn't set. And also we don't all have the necessity of living in the same sort of ontology in order to coexist. 
by definition in a democracy, as a matter of fact, epistemology, we kind of have to leave that alone. Everybody has a perfect right to believe any loopy thing we want. Uh, so, yeah, that leads to flat earth societies in a democracy, but, you know, it also leads to discovery and invention and commerce for that matter. In order for democracy to work, we have to find a place of ontological multiplicity. That's when we can learn to live together and we aren't calling people out, we are calling people in. And as I've said very often, it is up to humanists to be the adults in the room too often, but we have to do that. Othering and villainizing other people is the oldest trick in the book of religions. And it's something that we want to refuse, absolutely. How a nation can politicize, for example, a pandemic, uh, well, that looks monumentally absurd, except when you think about how we divide almost everything into two poles in our politics. Now, I mean, whether or not a disease exists is not a political question. It just isn't. You can't vote on that. But how and when to open and close businesses, that's a political decision. It's something that we can actually talk about and trade off and look at the many facets of it. That's where the politics and the marketplace of ideas can make a real difference. And that's what Obama is talking about getting back to. Well, you know, I've uh, put on my blog, you've probably seen the, uh, the title for today, Do You Want Your Problems Fixed? It seems like such a, an obvious question. Of course, yeah, I, I want my, all my problems fixed, right? Well, the, the Gospel of John in Christian scripture reports that Jesus asked that question uh, to a guy who had been ill for 38 years. And I'll just relate a little bit of the story to you to, so we can think about this. Do you want to be well? Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, meaning five pools. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. Well, in our rapidly secularizing society, I'd say many people don't know why there are so many Bethesda hospitals around. Actually, that's a mistranslation in the King James Version for Bethsata, which was an actual place. Uh, this place is described as having five porches, so it's a large building, and this building is filled with the, quote, blind, halt, withered, uh, halt at the time meaning lame and withered meaning paralyzed. 
And the people are gathered there because they believe an angel comes down once in a while and troubles the water. And whoever gets to the pool first gets healed. And John focuses on that one person, the guy who's had that infirmity for 38 years. And Jesus asks the man, wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to get over your problem? And rather than answering with a strong, yep, dude, I do, the man instead lodges a complaint. He says, uh, because he can't afford a personal attendant and he doesn't have any friends, he's always the last guy to the water. And that lodged complaint is important to the story. The man wants to get well, clearly, but he doesn't have anybody to help him with that necessary task. Now, from whatever source that question comes down to us, do you wish to be made whole? Reveals a lot about what's happening in that story, uh, considerably more than just at first glance. The question elicits the response, nobody even sees me. And whatever the source of this narrative, I think it reveals something else. A vague understanding, even among those early Christians, that this miracle is not at all miraculous in any breaking the rules of science sort of way. Uh, notice a couple of details in the story. This huge building of fo is full of impotent folk. They have lost their potency, their life force. Also notice the most glaring detail. If Jesus is such a great healer, how come he doesn't heal everybody in the building? Why wouldn't a great and compassionate miracle worker do that? Nope. Instead, he walks up to one guy and asks a question. And the way he asks the question tells us what's actually going on, I think. Do you wish to be made whole? My suspicion is that Jesus has come in and read the room, and he's found the one person out there who needs to be noticed, the one person who needs to be validated. And then after that validation, the guy is going to be fine, and he can take up his bed and walk. And that's good old-fashioned folk psychology. And this particular person was ready, willing, and able to be whole he already was whole, actually. He merely needed somebody to inform him of the fact. The man needed to be noticed. He needed to be validated. And there's one more thing the man was willing to do, and that is let go of his self-identification as a sick person, as an infirm person. But many of us are not willing to do that. We have rather fallen in love with our brokenness or what we see as our brokenness. When that happens, no healer is going to come walking by. Now, I hope my point here is clear enough. There are two lessons in this story for the contemporary United States. At the moment, the answer to the question, do we wish to be made whole, is, I think, twofold and answered in two ways. One from the conservatives, we're not sick. Forget about it. There's nothing broken here. Stop talking about it. And then from us progressives, unfortunately, I think we say, heck no, not with those other people around here. We don't want to be whole. And do you wish to be made whole as an individual? Well, there's no miracles that are going to happen there. First, you've got to face the facts and look at those breaks and those cracks, and you got to want it. And do 
we wish to be made whole as a nation. And there's no miracle going to happen there either. First, we've got to face those facts. We've got to look at those breaks in the cracks, and we've got to want it. Forget about covering up the cracks. They are there, and they will remain. Accept them, learn from them, and let's get down to fixing them. The cracks are what make that thing of beauty, whether that thing of beauty is you or a nation. Acceptance, accept, see the beauty of all the tinkers, dams, and the cracks and the bricks. Enjoy the terrible beauty of the moment because as Zen Buddhism will tell us, this moment, it's all we're ever going to get. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.